0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at northsferrychurch.org. All right, well, I have a handy-dandy uh, laser pointer. I got it from Jared. No, I don't have it for the map. I have it to keep you awake because a lot of y'all got in it like 4 or 5 in the morning. Am I right on senior prom night? No. Oh, you're lying in church. <laughs> lying in church. And the rest of you, I know you're going to be wanting to sleep because I'm going to pull up a map and talk about the map. And anytime time you get a map, that just sounds like good sleeping music. That's like a rainstorm on a tin roof, isn't it? Well, today we're going to work through chapter 15 of Joshua. It actually, I thought I could begin with a riddle. What do the boundaries of Judah in the book of Joshua, chapter 15, have to do with Palm Sunday, salvation, and sanctification? That's a good riddle. If you can figure that riddle out, you've got the sermon figured out. But actually, it does. And so we're going to work through. First of all, I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter so you kind of can make sense of the chapter. And then we're going to see how this boundaries of Judah in this chapter relate to salvation and sanctification. Uh, so first of all, the overview. First of all, we see the boundaries of Uh, In verses 1 through 12, when you're reading through chapter through, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, the first thing that the author does is describe in great detail the boundaries of the land given to the tribe of Judah. Remember in the first 12 chapters of Joshua, we saw how God enabled Israel to conquer the land. Now, in the next 13 to chapter 19, we're going to see God allocating or allotting. And the word lot is in there because he cast lots. God allocated or allotted this land as he decided it should be allotted. And so, we come today to the first tribe ...that's going to get their land and it's the tribe of Judah. Now let me make a few points about it in our overview. First of all, we will see that the tribe of Judah gets the largest amount of land... ...and the detailed that's given in your scriptures... Is the most detailed of all the tribes. I mean you can follow the if you read verse by verse, it says it turned here, it went southward here, it started here, it went over here. I mean it literally just detailed by detail, it starts here and it tells you the southern border. This is the Salt Sea, this is the Mediterranean Sea. And the verses 1 through 12 tell you here's the southern border. We know several points along. We know exactly where those are. But there's a lot of places named in the Bible. We don't know exactly where they are. But you know they fall along the line that go to the points we do know. And so it just tells you travel right around here. And here's the southern border of Judah. And it says the Salt Sea is the eastern border. It says the Mediterranean Sea is the western border. And then with great detail it describes in these verses the northern detailed boundaries of uh, of Judah. And we said last week, if you found out your rich uncle died and you were part of the will and you were getting the inheritance, you would very carefully pay attention to the very minute detail as they read the boundaries of your portion of the property. Well, this is an inheritance that has been coming for hundreds of years. God told Abraham hundreds of years, Previously, your children will live in this land, and it's finally happening. And so they are paying careful attention to the detailed description of the boundaries of the land. But we also see that Judah is the most prominent of the tribes. Judah gets the most information, the most land, the most detail. And so we see that in this text as well. But also notice in verse 8, everyone look at your Bibles if you have it, verse 8. The author, you're reading through all these towns and you're reading through all these boundaries and the author inserts a parenthetical reference to the reader of the Bible and he makes a very careful note. He says, Then the border went up to the valley of Ben-Hanim and the slope of the Jebusite on the south, parentheses, that is Jerusalem. The author does not want us as readers to miss this. He says, you need to understand that's Jerusalem. That's a big deal. The author doesn't want us to miss it. And so, in the first verses 1 through 12, we see the preeminence of Judah, the tribe, and we see that it includes the city of Jerusalem. All right, then you get to verses 13 through 19. What's in verses 13 through 19? Well, you have Caleb brought up again. Remember, last week, Caleb was a model of faithfulness. He was the stud. He walked his whole life with God. And his 85-year-old man, his body may have been frail, but his spirit was not. He was like, give me the Anakite. Give me the Anakim. These big, giant people who made us feel like grasshoppers. He says, give them to me because God has promised it. God's going to deliver. So God, Caleb is shown as faithful. Well, here he comes up again. And now he's having to take his land. Uh, he, he gets Horeb and he gets Debir. Now, the thing that we really want to know when we read this is, is it right for cousins to marry? If you don't get the joke, you haven't read the text. Because here's what happens. Caleb comes into the land, and he says, he takes Horeb. And then when it comes to Debir, he says, I'll give my daughter to the man who conquers Debir. And it happens to be that Caleb's brother's son conquers Debir. So Caleb gives his daughter to Caleb's brother's son. So you got something weird going on with cousins? I don't know. I don't have an answer. So... Put that to bed. Let's not be distracted by that. Apparently that's okay. So we will uh, look at what he does want us to think about. And what he does want us to think about, I think, is the fact that they're having to drive... Caleb has to drive the enemy out of this land a second time. Both of these cities have already been mentioned as previously they've been conquered already. And the land that I'm talking about is somewhere right around in here, Debir and Hebron. Caleb gets that piece because Caleb is in the tribe of Judah. So... Ignoring the whole cousin kissing cousin thing, we we see that Caleb drives out a second time people out of the land. We're going to see how that comes up later. Finally, the last section of the chapter, verses 20 through 63, the cities are allocated to Judah. The boundaries have been drawn, and now you see all the cities that are listed, just city after city after city after city is given to Judah. And then you get to the very last verse, chapter 63... And what does he say in chapter 63? Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so there's Jerusalem again, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So, twice he highlights Jerusalem in this prominent tribe of Judah. He says, hey, watch for Jerusalem, and notice... The enemy still lives in Jerusalem as of the day of the writing. All right, so what in the world does that have to do with us on Palm Sunday? Aren't you glad I did not read 63 verses of cities and townships and directions? Kevin, aren't you glad I didn't make you read that? Yes. Okay, so what does it have to do with our salvation? Well, in these verses we see how it connects to salvation by understanding how the Bible works. We're very passionate here about reading the Bible and how important the Bible is in your life as a Christian. Now, when you read the Bible, most of us have gone all of our life reading the Bible like this. We know there's a certain verse, or if we're really kind of almost superstitious, we'll flop it open and do this and say, oh, look what that. Oh, wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Maybe God's gracious enough to do that to us, do that for us, but... Maybe the next stage of maturing in Bible reading is knowing, oh, I love Romans, it's a good chapter, it has a lot of good theology, and so you read, maybe you read it like that, or you read a chapter. But the next level of learning how to read your Bible is understanding that it's a book. And like any good book, it has a beginning, it has an end. in the beginning, a lot of plots are set up, A lot of conflict is set up, a lot of problems, and the rest of the book settles it. I wish Stephanie Springer, our teacher, was here. She could tell you how books work, and she could say this is a great example of a beautiful work of literature. So to understand how in the world the tribe of Judah has anything to do with us today, let's just think about where we go and where do I always start when we try to explain the story of the Bible. I start in the book of Genesis. Man, that is so encouraging. Y'all are listening. All right, so in Genesis, we, we see the plot. What is the, the plot? What is the crisis? The crisis is God gave Adam and Eve, humanity, this beautiful garden, all of his creation. He said, enjoy it. I did this for you. Enjoy it. And then the greatest gift is that God is with them. They don't trust God. They're not loyal. They, they disobey God, and so they're exiled from the garden. Is all lost. No, God is gracious. And so God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bring all that back. I'm going to restore that through Abraham's children. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 key sons. These become known as the sons or the children of Israel. God told Abraham, I'm going to give Israel this land. This is called the promised land. And this was all hundred years after they went to Egypt. God got them out through Moses. And now finally we get to the text where we're going to see. And Joshua has them coming into the land. God gives them victory of the land. Now they've got to allocate it. But something important happened along the way as you're reading your Bible. And I could say hundreds of things, but I'm just going to choose Genesis 49. In Genesis chapter 49, the son named Jacob, whose name is Israel, is on his deathbed and he blesses his children. He blesses these guys, these 12 children of Israel. And the context is in this idea of God's promised restoration of the garden scene. God promising to restore. I'm about to get my pointer. Everybody awake? All right. So God promising to restore. His blessings on earth, what was in the garden is going to be restored. And now the context of that is, in the context of that, Israel says about his children these prophetic blessings over their lives. And there's a key one that mentions Judah in 49 verse 8. Genesis 49 verse 8. Listen to what he says about Judah. Now remember, this is poetic language. So you've got to think in the way that's written. He says this, Judah, your brothers, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your fathers shall bow down to you. So the preeminence of Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. So a son coming from Judah couches and he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him, the scepter, that's the ruling staff, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and unto him this ruling king of Judah, the lion king, to him will be the obedience of the people, I have a great idea for a movie lion king, it'll never work Anyway, so with poetic language, Judah is described as a lion, indicating that Judah will be the preeminent tribe, and from this tribe will come a king, and he will arise, and he will be an eternal king who never loses his rule, and he will have the obedience of the people. So as you're reading looking for how will this restoration come about. You start looking about God's people in the land, the tribes of Judah, the tribes, 12 tribes, and you know the tribe of Judah, there's going to be a king who comes from the tribe of Judah. And so when you get to this portion of your scriptures where they're being allocated land, you're going, okay, Judah is prominent. That's what, that's what was promised. Judah, now who is the king? Who is the one who will come? And we... As we read, we start to notice those two references to Jerusalem. Everybody awake? All right, seminary. I y'all didn't know y'all signed up for a seminary class. I know how hard it is to stay awake in a seminary class. So that's why I'm going to flash this. If I was really mean, I'd go right on your eyeball, but I'm not going to do it, Philip. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a king to rise up out of Judah who will bring about restoration. And now we're reading, and where our attention is on Judah, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so now we're going with an eye to Jerusalem. We're looking for a king who will come from the tribe of Judah. Who will it be? Well, spoiler alert, Joshua ends, and Joshua and Caleb were not able to pull it off. We get a hint right here, a little foreshadowing. They let the Jebusites remain in Jerusalem. And now remember what we said was going on here. This is a picture of God establishing his holy people in his promised land. And so the fact that they're leaving the Jebusites in there means that there is sin in the land. This is not restoration. For God to restore the garden, there was no sin. And so the sinners, the wicked people who were in child sacrifice to their false gods and in rebellion against God and God's people were allowed to linger in the land. And so we already see in verse 63 in anticipation, this isn't going to work. And as the story unfolds in Joshua, it doesn't work. There's several times we're going to see over the days ahead, they left the enemy in the land. They did not drive them out. The land is not going to be completely restored. And so we wonder, well, when is this going to happen? And so you keep reading and you get to the next book, which is Judges. In the next book of Judges, you have these leaders of God known as Judges and they're potential messiahs, they're potential kings from Judah. And time after time, they fail. The book of Judges ends. In the Hebrew Bible, the next book is First and Second Samuel. And you come to Samuel and now all of a sudden, you have what? A king. Wait, we're looking for a king. We're looking for a lion king. And so the first king is Saul. King Saul reigns and rules over Israel. But we quickly learn he's not the king. He sins. He fails. And God has him removed. And then God chooses a king as opposed to the men, the king that the people chose. God chose a king based on his heart. And he's described as a man after God's own heart. This guy has real potential. When you're reading the Bible, you get to King David, you're thinking, he is the Lion King. What does what David do? David in Samuel is said as the one who finally conquers Jerusalem. He's from the line of Judah. He conquers Jerusalem. He brings that ark, which is the presence of God, into Jerusalem. And he unites the whole kingdom of Israel in the promised land. I mean, this is it. And then David says, God, I live in this palace and you live in this tabernacle tent. I'm going to build you a temple in Jerusalem and you will dwell there and the people of God will worship you. All the land will be centered on worshiping you. This is it. And then Nathan, God sends Nathan a prophet to David and says, no, you're not the king. You're going to have a son and he'll be the king. He'll be the eternal king. And so we look, well, who is that? And first of all, maybe it's Solomon. It's not. And king after king fails. And the prophets take that and say, he's still yet to come. There's going to be a king, of a son of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah. He'll be a son of David. He'll be an eternal ruling king. And he will change the hearts of man as he puts his spirit within them. that's how the Old Testament closes. And you're looking for the king to come to Jerusalem. And then you open your Bible to Matthew, and it says the genealogy of Jesus. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of David. And then what Kevin read, and he shows up in Jerusalem saying, the kingdom of God is near. And they worship and they lay palm branches down and they say, Hosanna to the king. He is the one, they recognize him as the fulfillment of the scriptures. Simeon is the perfect Jew waiting and he sees him as the long awaited Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. But then there's a surprising twist in the story. He comes first as a suffering servant. He says, first, for me to establish this kingdom which changes your heart, I have to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And all the Old Testament scriptures have been foreshadowing Jesus. He's the great high priest. He doesn't offer the blood of an animal sacrifice. He offers his own blood. He has himself sacrificed on the cross to pay for sins so that we can participate in the kingdom of God. So that we can be established as the people of God. So the Spirit of God can come and fill our lives and change our hearts. So that we will long to obey Him. And then He rose from the grave, praise God, as we'll celebrate next week. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He promised, I'm coming back. And when He comes back, He's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as this bad, Conquering dude who will defeat his enemies. You don't want to stand against him. And he will finally bring a new heavens and a new earth. And he will restore what was in the garden. He will come to earth and be completely recreated. Be a beautiful, perfect creation free from the effects of sin. And he will reign and rule over all who are loyal subjects of him. Having had new hearts by the spirit of God. They will completely trust and obey him. And it will be glorious. That's how this allocation of land of Judah. Mentioning Jerusalem. Relates to Palm Sunday. The question is have you trusted in Jesus? That's the whole point of the Bible. Bible's not a guide to moral steps to make yourself a better person. The Bible is a story about Jesus is the one who restores what sin destroys. And then the epistles, the last half of the New Testament tells you how to live for Jesus. And then Revelation tells you how he's going to come back. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Do you see Jesus is the point of all of these stories? Even the maps point to Jesus. Give Jesus your life, your allegiance, and he will incorporate you in his kingdom. And when he returns, you will participate in that eternal, glorious picture that we just described. So that's how it deals with salvation. But how does it have anything to do with sanctification? And first of all, let's go seminary again. What is sanctification? What even is this idea? There's lots of big fancy theological descriptions. Let me just describe it this way. Sanctification is the process of learning to live as God's holy people. The process of learning to live as God's holy people. If everyone in here has trusted Christ and been filled with the Spirit of God, we are the holy people of God. He has declared us holy because of Jesus' holiness. He gave us credit for that, though we didn't deserve it. He said, if you trust in me, you're trusting in Jesus. I give you credit for being holy, even though you're not living holy yet. But one day you'll live holy when I come back. In the meantime, this life is a life of learning to become holy in our lifestyle. Learning to live out the holiness. And it's pictured in the allocation of the land. This allocation of the land, we talked about it in previous weeks, that it is... In essence, it's God making the land holy. That God is the great inheritance of the land. The priests don't get their land. They're spread all out in the land so that they can administer God to the people. And so it's a picture of driving out the wicked Jebusites, getting the people who don't worship God out of that land. It's, it's a, you can describe it as God making the land and the people holy. And so when you see it said, remove the Jebusites... And tear down their false altars. And get rid of their wicked practices. And don't let their false worship entangle you. That is an illustration of sanctification. It is a picture of what we are called to do. As those who have been declared holy by God through Jesus Christ. He then says, in the meantime, while you are waiting for me to return. Wage Terrible, horrific, bloody warfare with sin. Put it to death. Hate it. And so when we see God saying, when you get in the land and you encounter these sinful, wicked people who hate God, and He says, totally destroy them, we understand that in light of the fact that they hate God. And they're living in God's land that is meant to be holy. And God says, Pulverize them. This is what God says in the New Testament. In Romans 8, Paul says, By the Spirit, put to death the deeds that are sinful in your life, and you will live. So, what God is telling us today, that even in this, what seems to be an archaic passage about Our ancient land boundaries. God is saying, do what Caleb did. Look at verse 13 through 19. Caleb, we've mentioned it already. Caleb takes Hebron and Debir. It says, now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of, of Anak, that is Hebron. And then listen to what he says in verse 14. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the interesting to note is that Caleb is driving the enemy, the wickedness, out of his cities for the second time. When you do, when you have a, a battle with sin in your life, and you think it's put to death, beware. It will try to come back. And God says, "Chop its head off, kill it, wage war with it. Don't let it linger in the land, for it will ensnare you, it will entangle you, it will lead you away from God." This. These verses that we're going to see the days ahead are going to be a constant reminder when we see the allocation of God's inheritance, God's holiness among the people of God. We're going to be called to wage war with sin. Now, I had Kevin this morning post an article that I came across in my research that we're going to talk about probably several times in a few weeks ahead after Easter. And it's called, it's written by John MacArthur, a paper written on, mortification of sin. Now, the word mortification means simply to put to death. To put the putting to death of sin in believers. And it works through chapter 8 of Romans 8 that says, you will by the Spirit put the death, the deeds of the flesh. That's not physical flesh. This is not talking about doing weird stuff to your body. This is talking about a spiritual battle against the sin in our lives. Even though we're believers, there's still a battle going on in our lives daily. We've got to kill the sin that wants to live in our hearts and in our lives. And we're going to see it's done by the Spirit. So I'm going to read you seven attributes or seven steps or seven that's in the article. I'm only going to mention them to you. And you're going to go and you're going to read the article that was posted. And you're going to read it carefully and slowly because it has a lot of big words in it. And you're going to call and you're going to say, I don't understand this. And you're going to work through it together. But the point is, putting to death the sin in your life is sanctification. Now, here's the key that we're going to have to understand. And the article does a good job explaining it. First of all, sanctification is God's work. The Spirit of God sanctifies you. Just like we've been seeing in these battles. they got to go in and they've got to yield the sword, wield the sword, but God is the one giving the victory. The same is true in sanctification. We have to do our part, but it's not our part. These are not seven steps to make yourself right with God. These are seven acts of obedience through which the Spirit of God works and sanctifies you we're going to see we have to abstain from fleshly lust when the fleshly lust come into your mind and your heart it's not complicated it's not mystical it's not mysterious he says abstain doesn't say ask god to take this problem away from you he says you abstain. He says you, second number two, make no provision for the flesh. Listen how, listen how practical these verses are. These are just verses being quoted. Listen how practical that is. Hey, you, abstain from it and make no provision for it in your life. Unplug the computer if you have to. If lust is a problem, then get a dumb phone if you have to. Get a password that someone else has to log on if you want to get on the computer. If that's your problem, make no provisions for it. Very practical. Positively fix your heart on Christ. If you glory in Christ, it has a tremendous way of the temptations fading off into the distance. Meditate on God's word. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. In that battle, pray without ceasing. Pray, pray, pray. Exercise self-control, which is a gift of the Spirit. Control yourself. We're not animals. We have the Spirit of God. He's already cut the head of the serpent off. He's been defeated. And he says, now, go and control yourself. Finally, be yielded to the Spirit of God. There is so much, so much to understand in all those. I just posted the article. I encourage you to go read it. You go to our website. Or no, you can't go to our website. You go to our Facebook page, or you can go to the city if you're a member. And Kevin has posted them out there. Like I said, I knew he was that good. And it's on our website. So go and read the articles. Take your time, and it really helps understand how are we to drive the Jebusites out of our lives. I pray that the Lord will use this time to to make us a holy people, to allocate the inheritance of God's holiness into our lives, and help us glorify Him in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we praise you for the beautiful work of literature that's inspired by you, that's preserved for our instruction, the Bible, and how all of it points to Jesus, even the maps point to Jesus, how Jesus is the son of God who was come to earth and took on flesh to be the son of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, the son of King David, who came to fulfill all the scriptures and all of your promises and all your plans, who came to give his life on the cross, entering into Jerusalem triumphantly, who rose from the grave, proving himself to be all that he claimed, guaranteeing that he will return again for his people, and he will finally finish establishing your kingdom on a new heavens and a new earth and where all those who worship jesus will be in his kingdom and will be set free to finally be who you created us to be to love the way you've designed us to love and to worship you with every good thing in our life forever In the meantime, Lord, as we await that time where you will return, whether it happens first or we transfer to be at your presence through death, in the meantime, may we wage war against the sin in our life. May we not let sin linger. For we know from your word that it will damage our life. It will quench our joy. It will bring terrible consequences. May we take responsibility to, to hate sin as much as you do, realizing how devastating it is. To drive it out of our lives. And when it, we think we've put it down, to, to never relax and to know that it always wants to come back and inhabit the land of our heart. Lord, in the days ahead, help us to learn how to do that well. Help us to learn that it is your spirit who sanctifies us, but that your spirit, he works through our obedience. Our not giving any provision to the flesh, our being very careful. Lord, make us a beautiful, holy people to your own glory. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray. Amen.